go to the middle, you'll find Isaiah, or if you have an app, you're, you're cheating. But uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 7. And as you turn there, um, I'll, I'll be uh, sharing a couple of quick housekeeping items and announcements. The first one, uh, today, <clears throat> uh, we have something called First Lunch. If you've been coming out to our church kind of more recently, uh, you could have, this, today might be your first time, uh, welcome. Uh, but you came on a great Sunday. Um, after third service, there is a lunch uh, where you can kind of get to know some people at our church and other people. And it's really an informal time where you can ask questions about the church if, uh, if you, there are things that you're wondering and so forth. And so uh, please go to the welcome station uh, afterwards, uh, right out through the double doors, and you can ask them for the info, all right? By the way, if you know someone uh, who's kind of relatively new, you can nudge them along to this luncheon, all right? Uh, the second announcement, <clears throat> if you look on the screen, is, um, you know, holidays, uh, the Christmas season, it's, it's busy for us. There's so much going on, family gatherings and Christmas parties and so forth. And often it, we can almost crowd out uh, what um, Christmas is supposed to mean for us. And so as a church, one thing that we, we try to do is we try to build into the structure uh, and almost into the calendar ways where we can be reminded. And so there's a lot going on uh, for our church. You know, we have a KKC Christmas celebration. We have uh, various Christmas parties happening uh, with different departments uh, and so forth. There's, there's, uh, we have Christmas Eve service and there's a lot going on. But this is designed as a resource for us as a church to really uh, be tethered to what Christmas is supposed to be for us. So if you go on the website, you can find all the the resources and the the events coming up. But there is one quick thing I do want to highlight for us. If you go on our church website, we have uh, kind of posted this other church's Advent series uh, every day. Uh, the entire month of December, uh, you can, there's a short devotional for you that you can read every single day it, just to recenter you, to just kind of recalibrate in your heart uh, for what the season is all about. Okay, so please check that out, all right? Okay, um, if I could just read for us uh, God's word this morning. Uh, it'll come from Isaiah 7, verse 10. This is the reading of God's word. Again, the Lord, he spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. So Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you also weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse uh, the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And that's, that's God's word. Um, you know, uh, our family, we have a, a little um, post-Thanksgiving tradition. Uh, the day after Thanksgiving, we actually put up our, our, our Christmas tree. Uh, it's it's a, a totally fake uh, Christmas tree, uh, one that we bought from Walmart a few years ago. Uh, it doesn't smell like Christmas tree at all, and it's, 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 it's very dusty, actually. Uh, and so sure enough, about a week ago, on Black Friday, the kids in their pajamas and I, not in my PJs, uh, just for clarification, uh, we set up our Christmas tree. And for me, that's kind of a cue <clears throat> that the Christmas season is, has arrived. For you... Uh, there may be different cues for the arrival of the Christmas season. For some of us, uh, the visual cue m- might actually be uh, watching TV, you're watching football games, college football games, and so forth, and suddenly you find all these different commercials that are themed very 
in Christmas style with Christmas music. For others of us, the cue that the season has arrived might be that you go to Starbucks where you spend $15 a day and so forth, and suddenly you see the menu is different. It's a holiday menu. And for others of us, the cue may be audio. We've been listening to Christmas music since October. That needs to stop. Okay, Uh, And I bring this up because, you know, for us, whether you've been going to church your whole life or whether you've started kind of coming out to church recently and you're just kind of checking this stuff out, if we're really honest, the Christmas season for Christians, it can be a little uh, kind of awkward. There's a little bit of a tension, isn't there? Because on the one hand, we, we know that it's not wrong. We know it's not inherently sinful to celebrate and engage in the kind of festivities of Christmas. There's nothing wrong with Christmas presents. In fact, these are good gifts from God uh, to gather as a family, to eat good food, to watch you know, professional basketball on Christmas Day and, and drink you know, hot chocolate and so forth. These are wonderful gifts and we know that. But on the other end, we know that Christmas is so much more. We know that there is a great significance to the season, namely that it is the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God became flesh. And so if we're honest, there may be times where we're not really sure how to navigate the intersection between earthly and divine realities in a way where it's kind of redemptive for us all. And so what often can end up happening is that we end up doing both really not well, Uh, We don't really know how to celebrate uh, Christmas well, and we don't really worship Jesus well. And so the whole Christmas season is kind of the Grinch all over again. And so as a church, what we want to do starting today and for the next three Sundays is actually dive into on our Sunday uh, kind of services uh, passages that are devoted to the Christmas story so that it can reframe our hearts and our minds in a way where all that we engage in this, uh, this month, all that we participate in, all the good gifts that God has given to us, we can really do it uh, with a undergirded purpose, naming that is really Christ and that we could worship him. And so to that end, uh, we're actually going to go back to the Christmas story for the next couple Sundays. But when I say go back, I mean like way back, way back. No, not even like the first century, not even to the nativity story, not to, you know, Matthew 1 and Luke 1 and 2 and Mark. No, I'm talking even way beyond that, far beyond that to maybe even 800 years, almost 1,000 years prior uh, to the birth of Jesus. Because did you know that the birth of Jesus is actually foretold even prior uh, based off of a couple of unique historical settings? Now, you might be like, "Uh uh-oh, like historical settings. It just sounds like we're going to have four boring Sundays of service and sermons. But you know what Hollywood has taught us is the power... Uh, and the relevance of what's known as the origin story. See, Hollywood is showing us that it's not as interesting to just know that a superhero beats the bad guy. We actually want to know how the superhero became the superhero in the first place. So, for example, we we want to know how Kal-El became Superman. We want to know how Logan became Wolverine. And if you don't know Wolverine, we need to have a chat afterwards uh, in in the foyer. Uh, Why? Because we believe that the origin story actually adds significance and greater weight and greater depth so that even as the superhero defeats the bad guys, we can understand these circumstances with far greater personality and color. And so in the same way, uh, we're actually going to examine the nativity story, the birth of Jesus, the account 
by seeing it in view of, in light of the origin story. And parts of the origin story is actually found in this Old Testament book uh, called Isaiah. Now, uh, for us to get into Isaiah and for today's passage, the passage that I just read, I do have to kind of set up the, the historical furniture a little bit, uh, and I promise it will pay off. Okay, I, I take that back. I don't promise. I'm just going to do my best, and so I don't want to break any promises here. Uh, and so I, I'd encourage you to actually put on your seatbelt. Please put on your 3D glasses and keep your hands in during the ride at all times. All right, so here we go. So we're going to paint, do some contextual history work, all right? So, uh, you know, if I asked you, uh, what, what are some of the, the greatest historical empires that you, uh, that you can think of, what would be an empire that you would name? You would probably say, um, I, I don't care, <laughs> right? Uh, the majority of I don't care, right? Um, um, and in fact, the, for the three historians in this room, you might care. And for the three historians in this room, you might be tempted to say, you know, one of the greatest empires was like the Mongol Empire, right, of the 13th and 14th centuries. If you're a catapult student in here, I apologize. I know it's not school, but too bad, right? Uh, Someone else, you might think, no, no, I'm really into the Roman Empire because literally in the first four centuries of the Common Era, they encircled the Mediterranean Sea, an amazing accomplishment. But, you know, for me, I, I actually was a history major, which is every uh, immigrant parent's dream. Uh, and um, I apologize if you're a history major, but it's the truth, right? Unless you become a lawyer, right? And I, clearly I did not. Um, but uh, as a history major, I, I, I loved ancient history. And for me, I always thought that one of the most fascinating ancient empires was that of the Assyrian Empire. You know, the Assyrian Empire... They were uh, a Mesopotamian kingdom that dwelled in the ancient Near East. You're like, okay, yeah, he was a history major. Their history is incredible. It spanned over 2,500 years. And most historians agree that they were probably, arguably, the first ever true empire. True empire. The first ever. In fact, uh, historians say that they were so innovative as an empire that their, their military, their uh, political administrative systems actually became the template and the blueprint for all the other empires that, that we would see come after them. How innovative, innovative were they? Uh, here are some of their innovations, just to see, uh, demonstrate how cultured and curious of a people they were. Uh, historians say that they were the first to have a postal system. So before Amazon, you had Assyrian, okay, I don't think they had prime services. Uh, Historians also say that they were the first to utilize a library, so they were very cultured. Historians even say uh, that the Assyrians were the first to use antidepressants. So they were a curious people, very curious. But one of the things that historians love to note about ancient Assyria was their sheer military might. Um, In fact, Uh, how big they were, if I could kind of go back, this is how big they were of an empire at their height. Uh, At at the absolute peak of their 8th century BCE, the Assyrian Empire stretched uh, across modern Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, parts of Turkey, Iran, and parts of Egypt, which in modern day, that's big. In the ancient world, that was pretty much like the majority of the known world. And that could only be accomplished by a powerful Military. Their military, even at their height or even close as they were ascending, they were the golden standard of their era. It wasn't even close. In fact, uh, historians say they were the Goliath military of their day. And in their case, the Davids never won. Goliath always won. 
One book uh, entitled From Sumer to Rome, which I don't think any of us will be reading anytime soon, by Richard Gabriel and Karen Metz, describes the, the sheer size and girth of the Assyrian army in this way. The Assyrian army of the 8th century BCE was comprised of at least 150,000 to 200,000 men and was the largest standing military force that the Middle East had witnessed to this time. An Assyrian combat field army numbered approximately 50,000 men with various mixes of infantry, chariots, and cavalry. In modern times, the size of an Assyrian army field, a field army was equal to five modern heavy American divisions. When arrayed for battle, the army took up an area of 2,500 yards across and 100 yards deep. So just for perspective, a football field, the length is 120 yards. Okay, so that is a massive, huge army. Tremendous. Uh, Technologically, uh, they were the first to use, extensively use uh, iron weapons, Uh, which was superior in their day to bronze weapons, and they they figured out a way to mass-produce them quickly and to empower and equip larger armies. So by the time even other armies could uh, kind of assemble and be trained, often the Syrian armies would show up uh, in the full capacity of their military with iron weapons. It's game over. It was game over. In fact, uh, this one podcaster named Dan Carlin, who has a fascinating podcast called Hardcore History, uh, it's long form, four hours of rambling about history, something only I would listen to. Uh, and he says, he argues that he believes that the Assyrian ancient army, that they would have conquered the, the uh, great Greece uh, armies of Athens and even Sparta, which is disappointing for those who have watched 300 because it is historically accurate, right? No, that, that, that was sarcasm, right? So that's how great of an army the Assyrians were. Oh, and by the way, they uh, were brutal. Uh, this was their DNA. This is what they wanted. They were not traditionally what's known as a passive city-state. They were a territorial state, meaning uh, their aim and in their culture and in their traditions, they, they pursued military conquest. In fact, a king's legacy was known for its conquest. A king who did not pursue military conquest was seen as, you're not an Assyrian king. And so this is what they did. And they did it with brutality. And uh, there are documents of uh, impalement and flaying. Don't look up those things on Wikipedia. Just enjoy your Christmas. Okay, it's violent and oppressive. And in fact, uh, they they wanted to spread this fear. They they wanted it to be known just how tremendous uh, they were and how cruel they were. So uh, historians say that, for example, when a a foreign delegate would want to come and speak to the Assyrian king, he would have to wait in this this little area. But this little area, there would be carvings on the wall showing the military conquest of all the, 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 the Assyrian king that he's about to go in and talk to. And of course, these carvings, you know, it's not like sunshine and wonderful animals. Uh, it's carvings of all these soldiers getting their heads lopped off by the Assyrian army as if to, let, to signal, oh, this is the king that you're about to go and talk to. You, you don't want to be on the wrong side of this king. So why don't you sit here for, and, and watch all these pictures for about another two hours before you go and talk to our king. Uh, Dan Carlin in his podcast has this uh, just riveting and horrifying story. And if you're like, where's he going with this? Just hang on, there, there, there's a reason. Uh, this horrifying story of this one carving where it shows uh, this uh, Assyrian king on, uh, like laying on his couch or on his bed. And there's a, a, a woman in the room who's presumably either his wife or his concubine. But in the corner of the, of the carving is 
the head, a, a lopped off head of an Elamite king who's facing the direction of the king and his former wife. As if to almost say like, you're dead and now you have to be facing the direction of the bedroom of the king and now you're past wife. That, that is not even psychological warfare. That, that, that is just crazy, right? In fact, one historian, and I'll end with this quote, Simon Anglin, he says this about the uh, Assyrians. He says, while historians tend to shy away from analogies, it is tempting to see the Assyrian Empire, which dominated the Middle East, as a historical forebear of Nazi Germany. Okay, so it's not, it's, it, there, there are different underlying things when you're compared to Nazi Germany. An aggressive, murderously vindictive regime supported by a magnificent and successful war machine. These were your ancient Assyrians. So imagine living in the 8th century and not being an Assyrian. Imagine living in one of those other regions like Egypt or Syria or Israel. And you know that this empire, this military powerhouse where they love territorial campaigns, that they have their eyes set on you. Like that should not produce in you good feelings. Now imagine being a political leader during this time. Imagine being the king of Egypt, the king of Israel. How would you feel seeing all the citizens of your kingdom and knowing there is zero chance of protecting your people? What would you do? Logically in their time, there was only two things a king could do. One, a king could try to form some sort of uh, the Avengers, basically, nation edition almost to try to team up with other nations and say, hey, let's form an anti-Assyrian coalition because none of us can defeat the Assyrians on our own, but maybe, maybe if we partner together, we can, we can stand the chance. And by the way, history shows that uh, there would be at times coalitions of 10 nations and they, they would lose to the Assyrians. The second option, the second option was to basically throw a, a, a Hail Mary take the biggest gamble to actually go to the Assyrians themselves and say, is there any way that we can be some type of a a contributor? Can we form some sort of alliance? We know you're a territorial uh, regime. We know you don't want to make friends, but to conquer them. But can we work something out? Those were the only two options that you had left. And it is in this context where God's people find themselves in the middle of the 8th century. See, at this time, uh, God's people, the Israelites, uh, their kingdom was actually divided into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom of Israel, and you had the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel, they decided to go with plan A, option one. They said, we need to create the Avengers. We need to form a coalition. And so there was a neighboring region called Syria, not Assyria, but Syria. And they said, hey, let's join forces so that we can try to withstand the Assyrians together. And together, this, is, this was their proposal. They went down to the southern kingdom of Judah and said, hey, we want you to join our coalition, join our team. The southern kingdom of Judah said, no, like that's not even gonna work. I will not join your team. And so the northern kingdom and, and their coalition with Syria, they were deeply offended. They said, oh, really? 
So like, so you think you can withstand the Assyrians on your own? Oh, I see, okay. Well, here's what we're gonna do. Before Assyria even shows up on your doorsteps, us together, we're actually gonna show up on your doorsteps. We're gonna conquer you. So before Assyria conquers you, our coalition, we're gonna come and attack you. By the way, this was a true historical event. You can look it up on Wikipedia because it's so, such a reliable uh, source of information. This was known as the Syro Ephraimite War. It's a true historical event. So if you're King Ahaz of the southern kingdom of Judah, what are you supposed to do? Could you imagine how he would feel? This is literally a no-win situation. Because first of all, if this anti-Assyrian coalition, these two nations, if they come and attack you, you do not even have the military might to withstand them. It's over. It's a no-win situation. But even if they don't attack you, you're, you're not going to beat the Assyrians. The Assyrians are going to win. Even if you join the anti-coalition, the Assyrians are going to win. If you try to join the Assyrians, they're going to just conquer you anyways. It is literally a no-win situation. The only certainty is death. So what is King Ahaz to do? It is at this specific, historical, cultural moment where God would send a man by the name of Isaiah to King Ahaz. And Isaiah would come to King Ahaz, and and this is the message that he would essentially give uh, to King Ahaz from God. Trust me. Trust me. Look, I know you're in a no-win situation. Will you trust me? Will you turn to me? In fact, you know that, that northern coalition? I will take care of them for you. Will you trust me? And so as we come into the story, as we read earlier, uh, Isaiah uh, prophesies on behalf of God. He tells King Ahaz, in fact, hey, ask God for a sign. Seriously, anything, anything you want, ask God for a sign and he'll prove to you that he'll deliver you. Ask. And King Ahaz says, oh, I mean, you know, like, because I'm so spiritual, you know, I don't want to ask uh, a sign from the Lord. And it's totally tongue-in-cheek. It's totally two-faced. Because according to the account of 2 Kings 16, it was, he actually said it in his heart to make an alliance with Assyria, which, by the way, will later bite them in the butt big time. And so God says to Isaiah, you know what? If you're not going to ask for a sign, I will give you a sign proving to you that I will deliver you from this anti-Assyrian coalition. There will be a virgin. She will give birth to an infant, a little boy named Emmanuel. And that child will be the sign that this military force of the anti-Assyrian coalition, they will not conquer you. In fact, before this little boy is even old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, I will take care of uh, Israel and Syria. Don't worry, I'll deliver you on your behalf. And sure enough, that's what happened. Historical accounts show that this coalition, they did not prevail against the southern kingdom of Judah. Which meant that for King Ahaz, this sign, this sign of a virgin birth and Emmanuel was for him validity that God was with them, that God was for them, and that God would deliver them. That's what it meant for King Ahaz. Well, years later, Hundreds of years later, over 800 years later, there would be one particular night. It would be um, a silent night, a holy night. Please don't sing it. 
Uh, In a little town of Bethlehem, there would be born of a virgin, another child named Emmanuel, who we know to be as Jesus. And in fact, in Matthew 1, the writer Matthew says, he quotes back, he alludes back to Isaiah 7 and says, this is the one that was spoken of. I'll read it for us in Matthew 1, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So when we see that our Jesus is named Emmanuel, God with us, how does that, this, the, the significance of his name and his birth, How should we understand this? How do we appreciate this today in light of the origin story of Isaiah 7? Well, I think think there are five truths that we can glean and pull uh, in light of this origin story of Emmanuel. Here's truth number one. Sin, sin is the no-win situation enemy of humanity. Sin is the no-win situation of humanity. You know, like, uh, we, we have to try to understand that uh, the, the military might of not even just the Assyrians, but this anti-Assyrian coalition, when, when they would have arrived, there would, there would have been trembling in the ground. Sure enough, that's why in the earlier parts of Isaiah 7, when King Ahaz discovers that they're going to come down and attack them, this coalition, it says that his heart trembled like the trees of the forest. So it, it wasn't even uh, out of fear of the Assyrians. It was just out of fear of this coalition, because as far as he knew, he was going to die. And all of his people, they were going to die. That's how afraid and fearful they were. So we have to see uh, kind of the parallel of whatever it is that we need to be delivered from. We have to see it through the same emotional kind of fear of the way that they would have feared, uh, feared these armies. Well, sure enough, in Matthew 1, right before uh, he quotes Isaiah, uh, he clarifies what our enemy is. He says this in verse 21. She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, we have to see sin properly. We have to see that apart from Jesus, sin is this, just this violent, vicious, cruel oppressor that is utterly out to destroy us. See, often when we talk about sin, you know, we just talk about it so uh, like flippantly, right? Like, oh, I'm sinning, but I'm just keeping it real, right? Like this is, who I, this is my true self. Or oh, we think it's like this weird thing, like, yeah, we struggle with it, but Jesus died for it. It's okay. It's like this invisible thing. Yeah, there might be some consequences, whatever. We, the way we talk about it, it's just so, we, we just downplay it. But actually scriptural reality does not view sin in such a light. Paul uh, in uh, Romans 6, 23, he says that the wages of sin is death. You negotiate with sin, death, death. Just like how King Ahaz would have seen his situation as death. Uh, Three verses previous, Paul says uh, that uh, apart from Christ, all of us, we are enslaved to sin. We're slaves to sin. So sin shows up and takes those who do not have Jesus and captures us, leads us into exile and enslaves us. So when we see the fate of humanity apart from Christ, we have to parallel that with the fear that King Ahaz would have felt in light of the military might of the ancients. 
Sin is a no-win situation enemy for humanity. You cannot negotiate with it. Death is is inevitable with, with sin. Truth number two, offensive is God's means and proof of salvation. Offensive. You know, um, can, we, can we sympathize with King Ahaz a little bit? Because, uh, you know, when the prophet shows up and says, hey, God, don't worry, God's going to save you. He's going to deliver you. In fact, here's the sign. There's a woman and, a, and an infant. Like, that, sh- that would not have been comforting for him. Because when he's thinking about military tactics, that demographic in their day would have been the least productive. Like, a woman and an infant would not have been helpful to the situation. Like, it would have been different if uh, God showed up and said, here's a sign, look outside. Look, there are 50 angels 100 foot tall. They're gonna save you. It's like, okay, thank you. Like, we're talking. Like, could you imagine the the position that uh, King Ahaz was in, right? He's supposed to be this this amazing king and instead his soldiers show up and they're like, what's the plan, king? And he's like, here's the plan. On Easter, we look for eggs, but today we're gonna look for an infant. Like, that that is not a good, that's not gonna bode over well with your generals. And so we can understand why he must have struggled because the sign itself was an offense. We must see that the coming of Jesus, the coming of God in baby form is an offensive, offensive, a beautiful, redemptive offense to us. You know why? Because it's God telling us that's how much you cannot save yourself from your sins. In fact, here's how much you cannot save yourself. I will go and save you. I have to save you. And in fact, here's how I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go as an infant. Baby me is better than, so much better than adult all of you. Baby me is far more productive to your salvation than you at your greatest might, intelligence, morality, and power. So, so I will go. And that is offensive. The gospel is offensive to us in a redeeming way. True three. Humble is God's love towards prideful sinners. Humble is God's love towards prideful sinners. King Ahaz was so prideful, wasn't he? I mean, he knew the whole time that he was gonna actually team up with the Assyrians and not trust God. But yet when Isaiah shows up and says, hey, you know, God wants to actually deliver you, uh, he uses spiritual language to cloak his own deception. That's very prideful, right? And yet what, what does God do? He stoops down to Isaiah's level, Ahaz's level and says, no, 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 I will save you. In fact, I will give you a sign. Ask for a sign. You don't want a sign? I'll give you a sign. I mean, that is humility on the part of God. We must remember that Christmas, the second Emmanuel, is not just God stooping down to speak to someone. It is God stooping down into humanity. It is God becoming flesh. Like parents, you know, when we tell our kids like, oh, God came to earth, may, may that May that phrase find difficulty because of the weightiness of what we're actually saying. It's crazy. It's insane to say that the word God became flesh. That's insane. I love what um, Christian philosopher Peter Kreef said. He said, um, the incarnation of Christ was the biggest shock in history. Even his own people whom he had prepared 2,000 years for this event, they couldn't digest it. Even his own disciples, they couldn't understand it. It was unthinkable that the eternal God would have a beginning in time, 
that the maker of Mary's womb will be made in Mary's womb, that the first one becomes second, that the independent one became dependent as a little baby. First Emmanuel, God with us, God for us. The second Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us, God for us, God came as us. Incredible humility. Four, trust is all God asked for. Trust is all God asked for. You know, all King Ahaz had to do was say, okay, I believe, I will have faith. In fact, he should have had the faith to the degree that he should have sent out his you know, royal delegates and said, hey, go run to and fro throughout the kingdom and, and find Emmanuel. And when they found this child, the king should have gone himself bearing gifts and declared to the entire nation, look, behold, our salvation has come. And everyone should have adored uh, that child and worshiped God. He did none of that. Why? Because there was no faith. What's fascinating is that with the second Emmanuel, we find Gentiles from the East coming to Bethlehem, bearing gifts. Why? Because they believed. You know, our our situation as sinners, the only thing that God asks for is that we believe. That we believe. Isn't that the heart of salvation? You cannot achieve it. He achieves it. But he's saying, will you believe that I can achieve it on your behalf? Ephesians 2 For by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one, no one may boast. It's faith. It's faith. Lastly, unstoppable is God's kingdom. Unstoppable is God's kingdom. You know, uh, the Assyrian Empire, where where are they? They're nowhere to be found. Uh, Well, what about the, the amazing Roman Empire? Where are they? Nowhere. If you want to find them, uh, you can go, there's a little Las Vegas strip called little, uh, Caesar's Palace, right? Or there's a, a pizza chain, right? Not, not big, but little Caesar's, little, emphasis on little Caesar's, right? Where are the Mongols, right? Where's Genghis Khan? You can find him at Brea Mall in the food court, right? Please don't use your hands when you stuff the meat, that, that's gross, okay? Use a napkin, okay? But what about the kingdom of God? Reigning forever, forever. So may we not be deceived by the humility of Christ the infant and think that his kingdom is not powerful. All the empires have come and gone, but God's kingdom shall last forever. And this is all these uh, truths we glean uh, from the nativity story when we see it through the backdrop of the origin story. You know, church, um, this Christmas, you know, let's, God has, he's been generous to us, right? There's so many good gifts that he's given to us. You know, like when we get together with family and we can enjoy hot chocolate and, and open presents and take pictures and, and get to have family gatherings, these are wonderful gifts from God. But as we do so, it, can we just agree, it's so easy to kind of slip over into the edge where we just kind of forget all, Christ altogether, so, so we need to go back and remember Christ's birth. But if we're honest, even Christ's birth, even the nativity story can feel so sterile and just cute, right? And so that's why we must go back, not just 2,000 years, but almost 3,000 years to kind of capture the weight and the significance of what Emmanuel means for us, that God is with us, that God is for us, and that God came as 
one of us. And so may we do so. And may we worship him. You know, um, as we, I'll, I'll conclude with this. You know, I know that um, as we have kind of dawned upon the, you know, December and, and we're kind of entering into the season, some of us, we already kind of feel this, uh, uh-oh, uh, holiday dread, right? Because we, we actually feel kind of alone. Uh, there's some loneliness. Uh, we, look at, we look at our families and we're like, man, my family is just so broken. I see all these families taking pictures and I don't, I don't have a family and, If you feel alone, during this season, may you see Emmanuel, God with us. You are not alone. You have never, ever truly been alone. For others of us, um, as we've already kind of gone into this Christmas season, there's a little bit of anxiety, if we're honest. There is an uncertain future and there may be situations that are arising that make us really uncomfortable. There are transitions taking place. May you see Emmanuel. Oh, yes, God with us, but God for us. Who can be against us? Who? Oh, even in the most no win of situations, is not God faithful? Is not God powerful? For others of us, we already feel not understood. In fact, we feel like, yeah, I know I'm not alone. I know God is in control. But to be honest, I don't feel like God really knows what I'm going through. But maybe remember and see Emmanuel. Oh, God is with us. God is for us. But God came as one of us. And so he knows. He is acquainted with the the, fear, the pressure of temptation. He knows trial, suffering. He knows transitions. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to rise in fame. He knows what it's like to be low and embarrassed and humiliated. He knows everything. And so this Christmas season, may we worship our King for he has come to deliver us from our sins. He is with us, for us, and he came as one of us. Let's pray.